Luke chapter 3. We're continuing in our study in Luke and to this one who is the revelation of the very word of God. And, and so we see now in Luke 3, the word of God is revealed for who he is. So let's look together in God's holy inspired word. Luke three twenty one. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. The son of Heli, the son of Methot, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosan, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Ebra, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay. I don't think I've ever gotten clapped for after reading, but I'm hoping you're clapping for God's word. So let's pray. Father, thank you that every word of yours is pure. Every word of yours is inspired, is good for us. Lord, would you illumine us? Would you bring the light of your truth to us through these words? And would you visit us with your Holy Spirit? Would you fill us afresh? Would you fill me afresh and all of us afresh with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I used to stay at a lot of hotels when I was traveling for business, and you never knew what to expect when you would go down to the the restaurant in that area, and sometimes the hotels would have buffets to eat at, and sometimes if you arrived late at night, it would be the only option, and sometimes those areas would be a little picked over, depending on what time you arrived, and and. I would look around at times, and, and I and remember, you know, you, you go to one place and you, you see, well, oh my goodness, there's just these, just fresh salad greens, and I know that some of you might be excited by that, but uh, it's not exactly exciting for me, and, and so I think, well, my expectations are not very much. I'm not really expecting a lot. There's some salad greens, some veggies, oh, yay, and, um, and then I would go around the corner, this one place, you go around the corner, and then I discovered, oh my goodness, there was this whole feast 
And shockingly, there was, you know, a carving station with, with, with standing rib roast and beef and all these amazing things. And I thought, oh my goodness, and, and salmon and all kinds of delectable things. Now, now, maybe for you who aren't meat eaters, you know, you can imagine, you know, fresh strawberries or blueberries or those red raspberries that aren't sour. But it was always an amazing thing to, to find that there was something really good there that was delightful when I didn't expect much. I was just expecting salad greens. So far from our, our church's scripture memorization, we know that, that all of God's word is, is God-breathed, that it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness. And, and we know that God's word is good and is pure and it's wholesome for us. But sometimes we can approach God's word and, and we, we can think of it as just fresh vegetables and salad greens for those of us who are meat eaters. And we don't really expect much. And so you might come to a passage like this today, and as you read through it, and you're hearing all of these things, you're, this little description that Luke has about the baptism, and then this long part, this long part of this genealogy, and you're thinking, well, I know that God's word is good for me. And, and yet, what we're going to discover, and I think what you'll discover, when we dig into his scripture, when we dig deep, there's wonderful delights in store. And, and what I think you're going to see from this passage is that what, what first just seems like a brief baptism account and a genealogy, it, it really turns out to be a, a deeply encouraging, rich meal. Because what we see is that, that Jesus is revealed in his baptism as the one that we truly need. And we're going to unpack that a little bit and help you see that, that even the genealogy points to that, that Jesus, he's, he's revealed in this entire passage, Luke is not just giving us a history lesson, he's showing us something, he wants us to see something. And whenever you read scriptures like this, you'd ask questions, why is this genealogy here in this place? He, he does this after three chapters, John doesn't deal with that. Matthew puts it right in the beginning, and, 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 and each gospel writer puts it in different places for different reasons, and Luke puts this here because he wants us to see that it's tied to revealing that he is the one that we truly need, and that's the whole entire theme, and you're going to see that from the very first words that God speaks to the very last. You see this contrast between Jesus as the Son of God and Adam, who was supposed to be the Son of God, and you see that Jesus is exactly the one that we need. In the passage right before this, if you were here last week, or if you read ahead of time, that you would see that, that John the Baptist, he came and he preached a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he was powerfully preaching. And people were responding to him. And they were wondering, might this be the one that's prophesied about in Scripture? Might he be the one who will bring salvation? Is he the one who's going to be the answer to all of our problems? Is he going to bring not just temporary cleansing, and, but is he going to be permanent justice? Is he going to bring righteousness? Is he going to bring God's rule and God's reign? Because that's what the people really needed. That's what we needed. And so there's this heightened sense of anticipation right before the passage. And then Luke doesn't even deal with John. doesn't even talk about John being the one who baptized him. He immediately shows the answer to when John says, no, there's coming one after me whose, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He's going to bring salvation? Oh, and he's going to bring his Holy Spirit and purify. And so then we see Luke now transitioning here in this passage to reveal something. And, and what he's showing in this passage really is this 
brief but profound revelation. It's, it's, it's what we need to walk away with is that, is that Jesus here, he is the beloved, pleasing son of God that we need. That's what we're meant to get. If we walk away with nothing else, Jesus is the beloved, pleasing son of God that we need. That's what we need to see. This isn't just salad greens. This is deep, rich food. He's the beloved, pleasing son of God that's given for us. And so he writes briefly. He says, he says all the people are coming to be baptized. And Jesus went to be baptized too. And you think, wait, wait, wait a minute. Hang on. Why, did, why is Jesus being baptized? He didn't need to be baptized. He, he wasn't sinful. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't need to come and, and seek forgiveness. He didn't need to repent of anything. But no, you see, in his baptism, he's the one we need because Jesus identified with all the people. Jesus identified with all the people. That's what John, I mean, Luke is hoping that we see is that he says, when all the people came, Jesus was also baptized. He identified with the people in every way. And that's important for us to think about because it, that, that means something to us. He, he's not distant from us. He's not aloof from us. He's not aloof from you. He's not distant from you. He identifies with humanity in every way. As humanity, we need someone who can represent us before God. We need somebody who can identify with us. We need somebody who can understand us. If, if, if we're going to hope to appeal and be represented before a holy and perfect God, we also need someone who understands our frailties, who understands our needs, who understands our weaknesses. You know, when people select somebody to, which is coming up soon, everybody's aware of that, when they select somebody to represent them in government, what they're hoping for is someone that understands them. Right? You're hoping for someone that, that gets you, that understands your problems, that understands your situations, that understands your economic realities. That's why politicians always portray themselves as being among the people when candidates roll into town. You know, candidates were in Malden and different local places. And you're like, why do they come to these little places? Well, because they want to identify with the people. And so they go to ice cream shops and delis and meet in threes. You know, places that I don't go to any longer. But um, they tell stories of how they grew up and they try to appeal to the everyday man. But the reality is, most of them are not who they pretend to be. Many are elites. They have, they have Ivy League educations. They, they, have educate, they have trust funds. But, but what we want is somebody who can truly relate and identify with us. And Luke is giving us the picture of Jesus. It's not a, it's not a put on. That's why at the very beginning, Luke, Luke tells of how Jesus, Jesus entered into our humanity in every way. He entered in as a baby. He knows what it means to be a man. He, he lived an obscure life. He was born into lowly circumstances. Until he was 30, no one had heard of him. He was relatively obscure for 30 years of his life. He obeyed his parents. He learned the Bible. He dealt with difficult siblings and bullies and had to obey his parents. And people mocked him and made fun of him. And he got a job working in his dad's footsteps. And he was a carpenter and he worked among these people as a normal, everyday, blue-collar kind of guy. And then when John said that 
I mean, God, God called all people through John to be baptized. Jesus came too, and he didn't do it for himself. He did it to be obedient in our place in every way, to perfectly fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus did. He, in every way, he identified with humanity, and he fulfilled all righteousness. That's what Matthew tells us, why Jesus came to be baptized. But then Luke doesn't spend much time there. He doesn't include the fact that John protested baptizing Jesus and said he needed to be baptized by Jesus. He doesn't tell us that Jesus said he came to fulfill all righteousness. That's why he was baptized, because Jesus wanted to perfectly obey God on our behalf, even though he had no need to be baptized. He was obedient in every way, consecrating, submitting himself to God. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then we see, after he's baptized, he doesn't spend a lot of time on it like the other writers. He's the briefest amount of time, the gospel writers. And then he says something, though, he's drawing attention to. He's drawing attention to Jesus' identity, but he's also drawing attention to something else before that. He says that Jesus prays. That is astounding, that Jesus relied on God in prayer. He, he was the God-man. And yet he relied on God in prayer. And, and what an example, not only for us, but also in his everyday life. He's the one we need. He perfectly relied on God in prayer. He didn't get it wrong. He didn't forget. And when he was praying, something happens. But it's astounding to think that, that he was praying at all. He perfectly knew the mind of God. As God, he was self-sufficient, but as man, he was not. He knew he was dependent. He knew as man, he needed God every step of the way, and he relied on God in prayer every step of the way. And maybe there's, there's an important implication for us in that, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we're focusing on prayer as one of the goals for us as a church. And that's his ministry began with prayer. Jesus' ministry began with prayer. And, 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 and his ministry was really, God's blessing him was in response to prayer. Not merely because it was a command. You know, you know any, any more than when I tell my children they need to drink water so they don't get a headache. It, it's not that it's just a command that's a duty. It, it's meant to, to be for their good. We, we need to follow Jesus' example in pleading in prayer. Because it's how we receive from God. It's how God communicates with us. It's how we are dependent upon God. And it's not a duty any more than when I'm gone and I ask my kids, hey, would you please eat food while we're gone? Sometimes they forget and they need to be nourished and also they need to not be hangry. And it's a real thing, by the way. But anyway... Um, it's a real temptation. But prayer, it's not meant to be drudgery. It's But going to God is like we go to a counselor when we're at a loss. It's like a good cup of coffee in the morning to start the day. We can skip it, but it might affect us and slow us down. It's like exercise that, that builds and strengthens and encourages. It's like putting gas in the tank of our car so we can go. Yeah, it's, it's a duty, but it's... But, it, but it's, it helps us, it, it enables us. It's like filling the tank with breathable air for the scuba diver. It not only makes the trip underwater possible, but it's a lot more enjoyable than drowning. 
So often we can think we could do life on our own and we don't need prayer. Jesus relied in prayer. And we need God's enabling and we need his empowering if we hope to carry out what he's calling us to do. And Jesus begins, before he begins his ministry, he prays. We want that to be the case for this church. Before we, before we step out, before we do things in ministry, we want to rely on God in prayer. Because growth and fruitfulness, they're only possible through prayer and by a work of the Spirit. And, and Luke tells us that when Jesus was praying, something happens. Look down in your Bibles. Something happens when Jesus is praying. God did something significant in response to prayer. It says that he opened up the doors of heaven. He opens up the doors of heaven. This, this doorway is, is, is opened up between the invisible realm where God dwells in the earthly realm and time and space were open and we can't understand the mystery of it and then something more dramatic happens the, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit comes down Jesus is empowered by the Spirit Jesus prays and he relies on God in prayer and then Jesus is empowered by the Spirit it says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form I can't imagine what that must have been like. The, whole, the, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit, everyone sees this. This is not an imagination. This is, this is not something that, that people thought might be happening. This is, this is not a collective you know, mirrors or trickery or feeling or a thought or a vision. Nobody expected this to happen. They didn't know who Jesus was. They weren't looking for this. And yet, when this guy goes up, who most people don't recognize, John's like, here he is. And the heavens are open. He's praying. The heavens are opened. The Holy Spirit comes down on him in bodily form. And this is like a dove. It's not an actual dove that descended on him, but in that form. And I think this meant to convey something about the, the gentleness, the, the graciousness of the Holy Spirit. And he comes visibly, this outward sign of the presence of God. And he anoints Jesus publicly. And he affirms his identity. It's the anointing of Jesus. And then, see, this prayer and the empowerment of the Spirit, it precedes ministry. The same is true for us. And surely if Jesus relied on prayer and the empowering of the Spirit, then we need both too. There's a sister church of ours in, in Buford. They have been seeking the Lord in prayer and they began the new year with a, a whole week of prayer then they read the Bible for like two days straight um, and, and then they've been, they've been seeing as they're praying the Holy Spirit has been coming and, and bringing people to the Lord and their church and it's been really encouraging to talk to um, Taylor about and, and to hear about how they've been empowered for boldness in their witness and I think you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that as a church we want to pursue and plead in prayer, see the Holy Spirit enable us for boldness in our witness so we can invest in people and invite them to Jesus and then see God do the amazing work that only he can do. And I wonder how he might, begun, how he might respond as we begin to seek him in prayer like this. In this unique event in history, Luke shows us the Holy Spirit's making plainly visible. Jesus is not just some man, though he is unique in all of history. The heavens don't open up in that way for anyone 
they open that way for Jesus. The Spirit descends on him. It says, this voice comes from heaven. And listen to what the voice says. Look down your Bible. It says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, Jesus is fully pleasing to God. Jesus is fully pleasing to God. Why is that important? Because we are not. We need someone to represent us who is fully pleasing to God, fully acceptable to God on our behalf. And, and, and I love the words when God is speaking. It's, it's beautiful how the entire Bible hangs together. He says, you're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. And this really echoing words both in, in Psalms and Isaiah. In Psalms 2, 6 to 8, this is prophetic, messianic prophecy. And it says, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. And now God is saying, this is my son, the one who I will give the nations as an inheritance, the very ends of the earth as his possession. This is my son. Today, you are my beloved son. Jesus was commissioned by God. It was his stamp of endorsement that now is the time. He's installing his son as the fulfillment of his word. And it's meant to give people assurance that, that Jesus is given to all the nations and that all the nations are given to him as an inheritance. And it's the same Messiah that was prophesied about in Isaiah 42, 1. It says, Behold, my servant, upon whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, who I'm well pleased with. I put my spirit upon him. That's what's happening in the baptism. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed, in this gentleness of the Holy Spirit, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And, and really when God is pronouncing, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, he was pronouncing, this is the one who will bring justice in all the earth. This is the one who's pleasing to me and whom I delight. And because of that, we can trust in Jesus. That's why this passage is important. He represents us. He's fully qualified. He's pleasing to God. He's empowered by the Spirit. And he's going to bring forth this messianic justice that only the Son of God can. In a world that, that cries out for justice, that, that seeks it in all the wrong places, in, in a world that seeks it in all the wrong ways, we can trust that Jesus is come to bring justice completely. And at the beginning of his ministry here, he, he prays, the heavens are split, the Spirit descends and God commissions him as his beloved son, all because we're meant to see that Jesus is the one that we need. Then it says in verse 23, look down your Bibles, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. It's an interesting little note. He was about 30 years of age. You see, in the Old Testament, 30 it signified the beginning age for priesthood. Jesus is about 30. He's beginning his priesthood. Ezekiel was about 30 when he was called to be a prophet. Joseph was 30 years old and began to lead Egypt as the second in command under Pharaoh. 
David was 30 when he began God's rule as his chosen king. But the, also the surprising thing is that if you think about it, 30 is a long time to wait when you already know you're the son of God. I was 26 when God called me into ministry um, and I begrudgingly went, and, but then I was really eager to get started. And I thought I, I knew everything, had all the answers. Jesus really did know everything, have all the answers. And yet, why did he wait 30 years? Because he wanted to identify in every way, patiently submitting to God. He patiently submitted. He never sinned. He was, think about it, he wasn't taint, his mind wasn't tainted by sin. That would have been really helpful. He was probably intellectually brilliant, unstained by sin, smart, knowledgeable. But he waited till 30 patiently until God's timing was right. He trusted in God until his plan was clear. When we too often fail in patience, fail in trusting God. And in all of this, he earned perfectly the righteousness of God. That's what Luke is trying to get us to see. And then Luke waits to the point of the narrative until after Jesus is declared the Son of God to begin this genealogy account. And you're like, why are you doing this here, Luke? Why are you giving us a genealogy account? After he's, you know, John is in prison, you say that, and then Jesus has begun his ministry, and then you give us this genealogy. Why do you do it here? And then he says that Jesus was, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. He's saying, yes, he's the son of man, but he's not really. He's the son of man fully through Mary. Yes, he's fully the son of man, but that's not his only identity. That's his. He, he also has a different identity. He's not just the son of Joseph. He's the adopted son of Joseph, but he's someone else. After all, he's conceived by God through the Virgin Mary. And then he recounts this lineage going all the way back. He, he's the only one of the gospel writers that does it in reverse order, that starts with Jesus and goes in reverse order. And then he goes through all of these people, through Abraham, Noah, Lamech, Methuselah, Enoch, and then he writes, Adam, the son of Adam, the son of God. I think through that, what we're meant to see is a few things. That, that God's plan of salvation isn't limited to one tribe, one nation only. It's for all of humanity, throughout all of humanity. He worked his salvation out through every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus came for all of humanity, not just for the tribe that had to go through Abraham. And he, he gives 77 generations, so Jesus beginning this 12th period of seven generations. And he's drawing the, the point of something. He's saying that Jesus identified with humanity in every way, but that God's perfect plan of salvation was carried out through most of these names. They're different names than the other gospel writers use. And I, I think that it, he's actually tracing Jesus' lineage through Mary because it's different than what you see in Matthew, which goes through the lineage of Joseph. And what he's trying to show us is this list of, of a whole lot of mostly unknown people. Most of them are completely unknown. Most of them are normal. Luke's showing us that Jesus is a man for all people. But he's also showing us that God works through history and brings about a salvation through a whole bunch of obscure people who didn't even know it. 
They didn't see what God was doing. Every person, though, was significant to God, even though they were unknown. And every person here is significant to God, although you might be unknown. God's at work. He's bringing about his plans of salvation. God's ordained our lineage from generation to generation to bring about his plans through obscure people just like this. And it reminds us that, as well, that God keeps his promises. He made a promise to Adam after Adam's sin that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent, the seed of Eve. But most of the people in between probably live very messy, very ordinary lives. But God works sovereignly through all of history to bring about his purposes, to bring us the one that we truly need. And God's going to continue to work to bring about his final salvation through people here. But in tracing this lineage all the way back to Adam, he's giving us a contrast. Did you know there's two times the Son of God is mentioned? It says, Jesus is my beloved Son, the Son of God. He's the true Son of God. And he's contrasting it with Adam, the Son of God who failed. Both were molded and created by God. Adam was molded from the clay of the earth and created by God. He was meant to perfectly image God in the world. And yet he failed and he brought sin and suffering and shame and punishment and guilt and hardship into the world. But now this announcement has come. Jesus is the Son of God who is pleasing, who did not fail. And he's beloved. In Jesus, all the promises to God, to all of humanity, to all the sons of Adam are fulfilled. The entire passage is meant to show us that. He's the perfectly pleasing son of God. And this Jesus is the one who John pointed to and says, he will bring salvation. And he is the one who is qualified to represent us. He is the one who is fully pleasing to God. He is the one whose whose spirit descended upon. So Jesus is the one who is empowered to give the spirit. Just like John said, he's the one who will baptize with his spirit and purify all who are his. You know, we need someone who can take our place. We need somebody who's much stronger than us. We need somebody who's mightier than us that John pointed to. We need somebody who can give us the spirit, who can save us. No one in all of history from Adam through Jesus' dad, no one could save us. And yet now the Son of God has been revealed. God's purposes have prevailed. Jesus is the better Adam the true Son of God with whom he is well pleased. Why is that important to us? Because Jesus perfectly fulfilled all righteousness in our place. And we're going to see that as we go through Luke. We're going to see next week that Jesus has actually resisted all temptation perfectly when we were unable to resist temptation. We're going to see that God is perfectly pleased with him in every way. That's important because all who come to him, all who are found in him, all who trust in him can be sure of this. Here is the crazy thing. We've been given this perfect righteousness of God in Jesus. 
And if you believe in Jesus, if you put your trust in him, if you come confessing your sins, repenting, believing in him, looking to him for new life, this Jesus who brings salvation, then here's the thing. The Father is just as pleased with you as he was with Jesus. He's just as pleased with his son as if we are his son by faith. And for all who are in Jesus, no matter how messed up we are, hear the words of the Father. You are the beloved son and daughter of God. With you, he's well pleased in Jesus. That's why this passage is good. Someone once wrote, Christ, the son of God, became a son of Adam, that we sons of Adam might become sons of God. Jesus is the beloved, pleasing son of God that we need. Let's look to him. Let's receive the righteousness that he earned. Let's receive the full pleasure of God. We can receive the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus received. You see, Jesus is he's fully qualified as a man who's the son of God to come and bring salvation to mankind. It's better than salad. That's meat for us to feast upon. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we are aware that we do not deserve you. God, we're aware that we don't deserve for you to, to rescue and save us, that we are sinful, we're messed up, we fail, we continue to mess up and fail even after we trust in you. And yet, God, I pray that we would see that all of the perfect righteousness and pleasure that Jesus earned in your sight, that, that you give to us and that that would astound us and amaze us and encourage us that we would be encouraged and find hope that Jesus, you came to forgive us. You came to make us pure once and for all. That you came to give us your spirit. And Jesus, may we look to you. May we look to no other. May we hope in you. Jesus, would you continue to purify us? Would you continue to make us into your image fully? So that, Lord, we can reflect God as we were intended to through you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.